So Ezra. Oh well, yeah, we we we, we y'all remember Friday night, right? First and second Chronicles. Ezra. And Ezra I'm like, yes, Ezra, that's right. He knows. Sovereignty, y'all. Um I am a short person. What what why is that funny? I've dealt with shortness all of my life. Um, I remember one time a guy transferred into junior high who was shorter than me. And like everybody in the school kept coming to say, there's somebody here shorter than you. There's somebody here shorter than you. I'm like really? Is it, is it that big of a deal? You know? But now compared to Stephen, I ain't sure. Right? Well... <laughs> I, 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 won't, I won't say anything because I can't. So, <clears throat> But sometimes things like tall and short, hot, cold, are about perspective, right? Perspective. I want to play a little video about perspective, okay? Those of you that grew up in the 80s might remember this. Some of y'all might have been Christians then and might not have watched this. Um, anybody remember Kids in the Hall? Okay. All right. Then you probably remember this. Ready? Hit play for me there. Turn up that computer. Can't hear it, can you? He's crushing people's heads. That's all it is. That's no big deal. So, this, this skit would come on all the time. There we go. That's all. So he was crushing their heads, if you didn't get that. But was he really crushing their heads? Now, from his perspective, I'm just crushing Don's head. Stephen, since I made fun of you already, I'll crush your head too. From my perspective, your heads fit between my fingers. I'm, I'm just going through the, everybody's head. <laughs> oh, now they're getting me, see? Right, you can do that. You can do that. I am crushing your head. So from perspective, the moon, we can do that right to the moon. We can go, oh, I've got to hold the moon in my hand or the sun in my hand. Perspective. Something as big as the sun, we can block out with our hand, right? Depends on what your perspective is. Now, what we're going to talk about a lot today is perspective. Not just perspective, but a lot of perspective. Uh, we're going to get into some history of why these people are doing what they're doing. And I, I lied to Jason Young, just straight out lied to him. I told him I was doing the whole chapter of Ezra 3 today. We're not going to make it through all of the verses of uh, chapter 3. We're just going to make it through 7. There's too much teaching in here. There's too much good stuff to rush through this. So, we're going to read Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you would stand as we...
honor the Word of God and the God of the Word and receive the very Word of God for the people of God. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua the son of Jozadak with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Let me pray. God, I pray that today, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit who dwells in us, that you would give us understanding, a right apprehension of who you are, and the right perspective of where we fit into all of this. We need your help, and we know that you love to help your children, and we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me do a quick, quick recap of chapters 1 and 2. So these guys were in exile. Israel was in exile in Babylon for 70 years. While they were in Babylon, the Persians overtook the Babylonians. So they're in Persia, and God raises up a man named Cyrus, which he said he would do 150 years before Cyrus was born. And Cyrus made a proclamation that anybody who wanted to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem was welcome to do that. And we had 40 plus thousand uh, people talked about, not including women and children. So you've got this great caravan of Jews from the southern kingdom of Judah going back to Jerusalem. And who went? Those whom the Lord stirred up their hearts. Okay? So Cyrus says, if you want to go, go. I'll give you money, food, stuff, even the plates and bowls that Nebuchadnezzar took from the house of your Lord. You can take them all back with you. So they went back, right? And then the last time I was here, which was not last week, but the week before, we looked at this long list of names and people and tribes and towns where these people were from. And we saw that there was a connection with every person that was mentioned to the people that were reading. They'd say, yep, that's grandpa, that's uncle, that's whoever, because it's about people. So here they are back in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, what are they going to do? What are they going to do when they get there? Well... We hope we know what they're going to do, but let's look. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 3, and then we'll go back and talk about some of that. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua the son of Jozadak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, it's pretty important for us, and this is where we're going to spend some time laboring this morning, it's pretty important for us to understand the significance of the seventh month that's mentioned here. 
it could be referencing the seventh month since they got back from Persia. Or it could mean the seventh month of the Jewish year. Now, we'll see in verse 4, when we get there, that they observe the Feast of Booths. So knowing that, that happened in the seventh month of the Jewish year. Okay, So the seventh month being referred to here is not the seventh month after they were back, but the seventh month of the Jewish year. And that's important. The seventh month came. So what? Well, that's a July for us, right? Like, well, maybe, you know... Listen, it's Independence Day. It's not July 4th. Okay, July 5th is July 5th. July 4th is Independence Day. Just so you know. We don't celebrate July 4th. We celebrate Independence Day. Sorry. I'll get off that. That's perspective, right? So, we know it's the seventh month. So, what's the big deal about the seventh month? And it is a big deal. Now, you can remain seated. I'm going to read from Leviticus chapter 23. Now, a lot of you are going, Leviticus. Leviticus is the law that God gave Moses for how they were supposed to worship as the children of God. Okay? I'm going to read verses 23 through 43. And I want you to notice what happens in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. So I'm in Leviticus 23. If you've got a Bible and want to follow along, that's fine. If not, it'll be up here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Y'all can memorize that verse real quick. You ready? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Leviticus 23, 23. There. Memory work is done for today. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, In the seventh month, ding, 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 okay? On the first day of the month you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Verse 26 is the same. So you've got two verses memorized today. Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people." You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, there's three of them, Speak to the people of Israel saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. We've heard that already, right? On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day." besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, 
and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know, and here's the purpose statement, that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now that's a whole lot of information, y'all, and we don't have time to go over all of it. But So let me just condense it for you, okay? This seventh month, we saw three things that he mentioned that they had to do perpetually throughout their generations, no matter where they were dwelling, in the seventh month, okay? They had the Feast of Trumpets, Holy Convocation, where they blew trumpets. They had the Day of Atonement, which is a huge day for the Jews. This, that's a, again, we don't have time to get into it, but that was a big deal. And they had the Feast of Booths. All that was in the first 20, uh, let's see, 15, 23 days of the seventh month. And all of these things were big deals. Why? Because they were dictated to the people by God for the people of Israel to do. Okay, now listen. Why Ezra? Why Esther? Why Nehemiah at this time? Because we are a group of people who are transitioning into a doing people. Now you say, have we not been doing people before? Yes, we have. But we are mobilizing. We've spent a lot of time equipping, right? And now we are mobilizing for things like Friday night that we saw. For doing what God has called us to do. So why Ezra? Because we're looking at what these Jews were supposed to do. Not believe, not think, not feel, but do. Okay? So God said in the seventh month of your calendar, do these three things. It's not just a warm and fuzzy affection that they got a day off of work. Anybody? I mean, do you really celebrate Veterans Day? I mean, I'm not picking on you. Most people are like, oh, I get a day off work. That's what they're happy about. That's not what was going on with these feasts and festivals. This was not just, oh, good, I don't have to work today. They were not to do work. And listen, when you live in a subsistence society, which is you eat what you pick that day, to not work is a big sacrifice. Now, they've just come back from Babylon, from Persia, and they're working hard to get their lives put back together and to tell them, don't work was a big deal. But that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to do not working. They were supposed to hold solemn assemblies. They were supposed to afflict themselves, deny themselves of their everyday activities. And then came the Feast of Booze, which was a call for everyone to, call, to come to Jerusalem and be present there and quote-unquote live in booths, which were crude, homemade, tent-like structures made from tree branches. Now listen... You're subsistence living. You're scratching out what you can, trying to get a house built, trying to homestead, trying to find some land amongst all these people that are still there. And you're coming back and you're saying, hey, this is our land, but be right back. We've got to go to Jerusalem and live in tents, live in booths for seven days. We'll be back. Now, how do you think that went? What if you left your house for seven days? No big deal, right? Well... It's a little bit bigger deal for them. Two solemn days to cease from work and a one-week period to present yourself and your family in Jerusalem regardless of where you lived and live in tents for a week. 
Now these people had left Babylon and they made the trek across the desert. Reports say anywhere from one month to four month journey from where they were in Babylon back to Jerusalem across desert with 50,000 plus people and all those animals and all that stuff and all that gold and all that stuff. They ha- I don't know how long they've been back, but it hadn't been long. And then the seventh month comes. And they're like, oh, it's the seventh month. So what do they do? When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, which means they were in towns that they lived in trying to scratch out a living, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. No matter where they were, no matter what they were doing, they came to Jerusalem. Now, do you, do you reckon there were probably some folks who were rationalizing and saying from their perspective, surely God would understand if we didn't do this right now. And all of these days and this week-long feast required offerings and sacrifices to be presented in mass. So when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They all are, all of them, here in Jerusalem. Now what do you think it cost them to come there? I don't think they had their security cameras set up at home where they could track their homestead with their Simply Safe app on their phone and make sure everything was all right. That's, I'm being a little silly there. But they took a massive chance leaving their stuff in their homes. Recently, having just come back, now they were leaving for at least a few days and probably at least half a month. Who knows what they would come back to when they returned to their partially built homes and the lands that they would leave unprotected. It could be disastrous. So why would they do this? Who came back from Babylon? Those whose hearts the Lord had stirred. And what was the purpose of their coming back? They were going to build a temple in Jerusalem so that God could be worshipped there again. That was the whole point of them coming back, to build the temple. That's why they came. And these days in this feast were particularly important parts of that worship. Did they need a temple to do this? They didn't. So let's do what we came to do, right? Let's go to Jerusalem and worship God as He prescribed it in His law. And that's what they did. And what would be needed first if they were to worship by offering sacrifices? What would they need if they're going to offer sacrifices? They need an altar. Chapter 3, verse 2. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Joshua, or Joshua, which actually is what Jesus would have answered to when he was on the earth, by the way. Yeshua. Yeshua was the chief priest. So he, re- he represented the, the, uh, the priests, the, the professional workers who did temple worship and the religious folk, right? So he was the priestly group. Him and his people were the priestly group. And then Zerubbabel was the governor. So he represented the government. So you got the church and the government working together in a good way. We saw 
Reformation, that wasn't always the, the case. But now there's a lot that could be said about Yeshua and Zerubbabel, but again, we don't have time. We might touch on it going forward. But for right now, Yeshua represents the priests and Zerubbabel represents the government. So the religious and the political forces were joined together to do what needed done first here, to build the altar of the God of Israel. Now remember, they are here to build the temple. But before that difficult work can be done, they need somewhere to offer their sacrifices. They need an altar. Now why do you need an altar? Can't you just cut the animals open on the ground? Well, let's go back again to the first five books of the Bible. We're going to go way back to Genesis 12 for an example of what it looks like and why they did what they did. So Abram, remember him? The father of the Jews. Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So this is God calling Abram out of his homeland to go to where he would show him where he should go. Which meant he didn't know where he was going. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered. You ever just get the feeling that the people of God are a wandering people? And all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Sounds familiar. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, which would be Abram's way. When God appeared and said something, Abram built an altar. Why would he build an altar? Because he would make a sacrifice. You don't worship God without a sacrifice. And you don't offer a sacrifice without an altar. That was their pattern. And it was prescribed by God later too. So Abram built an altar. He needed a place to make sacrifice. And it was probably crudely built, Abram's was. Probably some rocks that he built up so that it was a raised platform that he could offer something on. Making sacrifices on an altar. So then we go up to the law of God, the law of God that the Lord would give to Moses, and in the regulations for worship in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was the portable tent that the Israelites walked around with in the desert. And God gave them specific directions down to the curtains, how many pegs, all that kind of thing. And included in that instruction was an altar. Exodus 27, 1 through 2. This is God's instructions for Moses to how they were to build the altar. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Okay, so you've got this square altar. Let me give you the dimensions in a way that we understand them a little better, okay? A cubit's about 18 inches. So this altar would be about seven and a half foot square and about four and a half feet high. It's about as tall as me. Oh, I'm a little taller than that. I'm five and a half feet tall. So. so, seven and a half square, four and a half high, made of wood, overlaid with bronze, with horns on it. Okay. Now, when the kingdom was established and David was making preparations for the temple that Solomon would build, the altar would be made, but check out these dimensions. Second Chronicles 4, 1 through 2. This is an altar, y'all. And he made an altar of bronze 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. Then he made the sea of cast metal. It was round 10 cubits from brim to brim and 5 cubits on a line of tiny cubits. 30 cubits measured in circumference. So let's go back to this altar for a second. Now we went from 5 cubits long, 5 cubits broad, 3 cubits high to what? 20 cubits long, 
20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high. So when Solomon built his temple, he's got an altar out in front that is 30 foot square and 15 feet high. That is a big altar, y'all. And he made his out of bronze. Feller's big, heavy. You ain't moving that altar. And that's what the priests will go up to make the sacrifices on. 15 feet high in the air. A basketball goal and a half. That's big. So this altar was pretty important. That's a big altar. It's a big part of what was going on in temple worship. So they knew that sacrifices had to be made, going back to Ezra. And if they were to be made, they had to be made on an altar. And not just an altar, but the altar that would serve as the altar for the temple that they were going to build. And the altar that God had clearly mandated to Moses, the man of God, as we saw in verse 2. That was Ezra 3, verse 2. So that's one big reason they set the altar at this time. They knew that these solemn assemblies that they were gathering for in these feasts, they would need an altar. But there's another reason they built an altar. And this is kind of... We can miss this if we're not careful. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now wait a second. They were afraid because of the peoples of the lands. Now why would they be afraid because of the peoples of the lands? Now imagine going back to a land that you've been gone from 70 years and come back and say, hey, this is my land. This is where my family lives. You need to leave. You need to get. Think it's going to work? Think they're going to go quietly? Oh, y'all are the people of God. No problem. No, there's going to be resistance. And so you come in and people are stealing, looting, pillaging, who knows what else. And some of these folks were pretty defenseless, right? They had nothing except what Cyrus had given them to rebuild the temple. So they were afraid. Now listen, y'all, I grew up in Helen, and I still live in Helen. Okay? If I went to Helen after we had... I, I moved out when I was 22, which is failure to launch for a few years, guys. You need to move out, Okay? You just need to, be, need to be an adult. Anyway, if I had come back when we came back 10 years ago and just knocked on the house of the people who were living in the house that I live in now and said, y'all need to get out on back. That ain't going to go well for me. Okay? So they were afraid because of the peoples of the lands. Rightly so. They're trying to protect their families. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to find somewhere to live. They're trying to build houses. And these people are not cooperating. So what do they do? One of the easiest things to do when studying the Bible is to look for statements that show why things happen. Moses made the altar. Why? Because God told him to. But look at verse 3 again. The Israelites set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. They set the altar because they were afraid of the people who were living in, with, and around them. Now do the math. They set up an altar because they were afraid of people. I don't know about you, but I think if I'm afraid of people, I'd form an army. Or gather money for a militia to protect me. Or maybe build a wall. It'll be huge. Have somebody else pay for it. That's what I would do. 
Now, we'll talk about the wall when we get to Nehemiah. That's the kind of things that I would do if I was afraid of people. I wouldn't set an altar in its place. Would you? I don't think that's what would pop in my head. I'm afraid, let's build an altar. But they did. Why? I mean, really, why? What should be the reaction of the people of God when fear comes? When fear knocks on the door, what should be the reaction of the people of God? Mm. Panic? Reaching out to the world for help? That should not be the reaction of the people of God. The reaction of the people of God when fear, doubt, shame, blame, tragedy comes should be worship. Psalm 56, 3-4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Jesus said, don't fear the one who can only kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So when fear comes, the natural reaction of the people of God should be to worship. tough though, isn't it, Steve? When the blood pressure is 240 over 135. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. That's tough. Right? I mentioned Wednesday, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. Worship? Build an altar? And here's where our word comes in, it's perspective. Looking at the psalm passage and then thinking about these Jews building an altar, because they were afraid of the peoples of the land, do you see a connection with perspective? Particularly putting God in proper perspective with what's going on around you. Is God afraid of cancer? Is God afraid of high blood pressure? Is God afraid of ISIS? So let's put God in His proper perspective. And it seems upside down and backwards to us. It really does, because we feel fear. So we're prone to react to fear with doubt, uncertainty, or sometimes even accusation against God. But as we see in Ezra and in the passage from Psalm, our reaction should be to put our trust in God and know that man can do nothing to us. Does that mean that nothing will happen to us? No! but we put our trust in God whose word we praise and we realize, what can flesh do to me? All you can do is kill me and send me to heaven. That's the worst thing you can do is send me to the presence of Jesus. Herb Hodges tells a story. I think I've told it here before. A guy pulled a gun on him in Africa one time. Shotgun. He had it pointed right at his chest. He said he looked the guy in the eye and he said, you can pull that trigger? Because when you do, you send me straight to heaven. And you send yourself straight to hell. And the guy, put the, the guy put the gun down and walked away. And Herb said, yes, I did wet myself. But, but it is perspective, right? What can flesh do to me? 
Kill my body? Well, we know that's not the end. Right? Am, am I right? Amen. What can cancer do to us? Kill our bodies? Our reaction should be to put our trust in God and know that man can do nothing to us. Our reaction should be worship, not worry. A right perspective sees God on His throne and worthy of worship and also finds refuge in that very worship we sang it this morning. I will hide in the shelter of the Most High God. I will dwell in the beauty of Your presence. Your faithfulness is a shield and a great reward. I will not be afraid. I will trust in the Lord. Huh. Did you mean that when you sang it? They were afraid. These refugees who had come back were afraid. So they built an altar. And they put their trust in God by building that altar in order to worship Him. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And that's not all they did. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord from the first day of the seventh month. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So let's stop there for right now. We'll finish out with the rest of it after that. Now we mentioned the Feast of Booths earlier and how they would live in branch-built booths or tents um, to commemorate their living in tents and their wilderness wanderings and recognizing that God's provision and protection through the desert was significant then and it's significant now. And Jewish people say that kids love the Feast of Booths. It's a week-long camp out in this recordy. I, I would... I, this makes me shudder because I'm thinking about what my booth would look like. I'm thinking like Steve Kemper would have like, uh, he would have like this Mac Daddy booth. And my, my kids would be like, the Kemper's booth's much nicer than ours. I'm like, shut up, you'll knock it over. Just come here, say But they say that the kids love the Feast of Booths. It's a week-long camp out, man. But it was a way for the parents to tell the children, God took care of our people back when we were leaving Egypt. We weren't there, but we've heard the stories, and we've heard the stories, and we want to tell you the stories. And that's why they did these things. It was a great way to communicate to their children what had happened all those years ago. And this feast would have been the culmination of the sacrifices that started on the first day of the seventh month, and then they continued to offer their sacrifices daily as prescribed in the law of Moses, in obedience, in love, and in worship. That's impressive, right? These guys counted the cost, and they gathered as one man in Jerusalem, and they did what the Lord prescribed because they were afraid of the people of the land and because God had said to do it. So that's the two reasons they went back and did this in Jerusalem. God, you said to do it, we're going to do it, and we're afraid of these people, so we're going to worship. What a picture. What an amazing picture. But all is not right here. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Now again, we don't know how long they'd been back at this point. But we do know that the foundation of the Lord 
the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they'd done a good work in getting the altar and the sacrifices running again. But God's stirring of these pilgrims was to come back to Jerusalem and build a temple where God's worship would be full and declarative of God's glory. So our final verse today ends with, or starts with the word what? But. Okay? It's a negative statement that is opposed to their obedient acts to this point. So they built the altar, that was good. They were afraid, so they worshipped, that was good. But, the foundation, the very beginning of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So what did they do? They gave money and provisions to masons and carpenters. That's a good start, I'd say. And they sent oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon. Solomon had done the very same thing when he built his temple. The Bible refers to the cedars of Lebanon as the very best of the wood in the world. And what they would do is, Lebanon's up here, Jerusalem's down here, they would go to the sea and they'd put these big logs, they'd bundle them together and they'd make rafts out of them and they'd float them down the sea to Joppa, which was a seaport, and then they'd bring them into Jerusalem. So they didn't have to carry these big logs across all this rough terrain through the desert, through all this stuff, so they just flowed them down the sea, which is pretty ingenuitive, I think. That's pretty cool. And again, Solomon had done the same thing. And our passage ends by saying that they were using the money that Cyrus had provided for them to build the temple. So that's good. Things are going along nicely, right? Again, the foundation's not there yet, but... Hey, let's cut them some slack. So, things are going around nicely. And that's where we're going to leave them this week. And we'll see next week, not so much. Okay? But that's for next week. But for now, how do we put our passage from today in proper, ready, perspective? Okay? How do we apply this? Especially regarding worship. And let's define worship quickly, if we can. Worship is not singing songs together. It's part of it. That's a small part of it. Okay? It's a good part of it. I love it. But those five songs on Sunday morning are not your only worship. Singing songs through the week are not your only worship. Remember Romans 12? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your life is worship. And we have an altar in heaven where Jesus Christ laid down His life, His body, His blood, so that we could present that offering to God. And it's been made holy by what He's done. So everything you do in your body is to be worship. So, let's apply our passage from today looking at worship and I couldn't do anything but peas, y'all. Okay, I got peas again. I've got the priority of worship, the privilege of worship, and the perspective of worship. Priority, privilege, and perspective. This is our application points this morning. I have said but and peas today, okay? So kids are still having a good time. And some of you adults as well. 
So first, in our application points, is the priority of worship. Now these folks came back from Babylon and they could have said, we don't have time to do this right now. We just can't make time to gather as one man in Jerusalem. Too much undone. It's raining on Sunday morning. We can't go to church. It's raining, right? The priority of worship. For the Christian, for the believer, and I'm not talking about church only, is worship the priority of your life? We talked a couple weeks ago about the glory of God. We talked about it Wednesday night. Being the center of everything that we do as individuals and as a church. Is it? Are you worshiping in your home? Are you worshiping at your job? Are you worshiping in your leisure? Are you worshiping at the table when you sit down to eat? Are you worshiping when you lay down at night to sleep and when you rise up in the morning? Is all of your life worship? Because worship is to be the priority of the Christian. But is it? Yeah. That's not one of those amen statements. That's an oh man, right? Amen, oh man, oh man. But what did God tell the Jews and what did Jesus say later? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Not the first part of it. All of it. Thoughts, words, actions, rest, clothes, toys. It's all worship. Worship is the priority of the Christian. First, before all things, amongst all things, surrounding all things, we are worshipers. And if we're not, our priorities are out of whack. Why do I go to work? Is it to pay the bills? Yes, but that's not the first reason. The first reason I go to work is to worship. Why do I come to church on Sunday? Because I like the potluck? That's alright. But it's not the first reason. Is it because I like the music? I hope not. At least not as the first reason. I come because I want to worship. And I want to worship corporately with God's people. The priority of worship. It should be first place in everything. And that's what they showed us. They said, we're going to leave our homes, we're going to leave our fields, and we're going to gather for these solemn assemblies. We're not going to work on the Sabbath that the Lord has prescribed. And we're going to live for a week in crude tents made out of trees because God told us to worship this way. It's a priority of worship. Second, the privilege of worship. I've already asked this question, and hopefully you can answer this pretty quickly. Who came back to Jerusalem? Those whose hearts the Lord had stirred. There were plenty of people, plenty of Jews back in Babylon. And they were probably observing these feasts. Some of them, not all of them. I guarantee you not. They had assimilated into the people of Babylon. They had become Babylonians. But God had stirred the hearts of the 40-some thousand men. And He said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to be the ones who build my temple back. 
Let me tell you something. To be chosen by God is a privilege. And we yawn at it. I, I don't want to put you in the same boat as me, but we quote these verses and we talk about God's sovereign choice and we go, that's awesome. But let me tell you something. We worship because we are a privileged people to be chosen by God Himself to worship Him. Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And listen, get a hold of this. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Christian, if you are here and you are born again, God has chosen you. He has sought you out so that you can worship Him in spirit and truth. And that is an immense privilege that you did not earn or deserve. Nor could you ever. It's an immense privilege to be chosen to worship the one true God. Ephesians 1, 3-6 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And here you go. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. You were chosen as privileged worshipers of God to the praise of His glorious grace. So why should we not worship? We have the privilege, we have the sole privilege in the world as believers and followers of Jesus Christ to worship the one true God. Listen to me, billions of people today will not worship the one true God. And we have the privilege of doing just that. How can I keep from singing? The priority of worship and the privilege of worship. And finally, the perspective of worship. There's that word again. Worship does something to us. It puts us in a place where we have a proper perspective. Where the trial is not the biggest thing. The trial is the one going, I am squashing your head, I am crushing your head, I am crushing you. That's the trial. The trial's back there saying, I'm destroying you. And you're looking going, what are you doing? Because you are small. And your little tiny fingers cannot crush my head. Cancer, you're small. Blood pressure, you're small. Financial difficulty, you're small. And you will not crush my head. Because our perspectives, we're literally looking at trouble going, you just don't get it, do you? And it puts us in the right perspective. When we are in danger, when we suffer loss, when we are afraid, worship gives us the proper perspective seeing God as preeminent and not ourselves nor our trials. Job. Then Job arose. When did Job arose? 
after he heard that he had lost everything and that all of his kids were dead and people had taken his animals and his crops had been destroyed and everything had gone wrong. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's perspective. His wife comes out and says, Curse God and die. And he says, You speak like one of the foolish women. Shall we only accept good from the Lord and not adversity? That's perspective. That's a right, biblical, Christian, worshiping perspective. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Yes, we will be afraid. Yes, we will struggle. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, things will be hard. And when they are, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. When my perspective is right. Because what can flesh do to me? Worship gives us a proper perspective. We'll finish with this verse. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Not free from trouble. Not free from trial. The war is raging all around. And in the name of the Lord, the righteous man is safe. And what do you think he's doing in that strong tower? He is worshiping. And he says, your name, O Lord, is a strong tower. I have run into this name and I worship you. And as I worship, I am safe. The world is falling apart. And in the midst of it, we worship. Our lives are racked with pain and difficulty. And in the midst of it, we worship. That which is a first priority, that which is our privilege and our privilege alone, and that which gives us the proper perspective in our lives is worship. They were afraid, so they set up the altar. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. That's what the Christian does. Let's pray. God, we thank you <laughs> that in this world we will have trouble. It seems a strange thing to thank you for, God. But it is in these times that we learn to worship you for who you are, not for the things and the gifts and the tokens and the toys that you give us. We learn to worship you for you for your name. And that's what's important, God. So we say thank you for the trials. And in the midst of them, God, we look to you for help. Not to figure this out on our own and do what we think we should do. But we do what we know we are called to do and privileged to do. That which is a first priority, which gives us a proper perspective, we worship you. We run into the strong tower of the name of the Lord and we marvel and we wonder and we worship. 
May your Holy Spirit give us that power. And may you get the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? I'm going to finish where Don started this morning. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can, please.